Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, for those of you who are here for the first time, uh, so good to see you. I'd love to get to know you. Uh, and for those of you who have just walked in, my name is Z. I'm a pastor here at One Covenant Church. Uh, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Uh, this is now the time where we will read the scriptures and we will be expounding the Word of God. Uh, we are starting a new series on shepherding God's people. Uh, usually our pulpit is uh, based on a book of the Bible. We work through books of the Bible. But there are certain times in the life of our church uh, where we do uh, consider a particular topic uh, to work through. And in this year, our church is celebrating its fourth anniversary. And we are moving uh, in quite a significant way to appoint our first batch of ruling elders now, this is not something that we're doing uh, flippantly, but something that we want to do guided by the Word of God. So over the next three weeks, I'll be expounding different sections of Scripture relating to elders and shepherds in the church. The purpose is basically twofold. The first is this. Uh, as members together of God's church, we are responsible for nominating and later electing the elders that will be leading this church and the elders that we will obey and submit to. In order to do so, we cannot just be guided by our whims and our fancies, what we like and what we dislike. We need to be guided by the Word of God. And therefore, we are taking some time to go through certain passages in the Scriptures uh, relating to elders. The second thing that I hope this will do is to build conviction and courage in the hearts of those whom God is calling to be elders of our church. So today, I'll be looking at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 to 4. But then I'll be also referring to other passages of Scripture. Uh, before I get there, there are two books that I'd like to re recommend to you if you'd like to read in greater detail about what we're doing. The first one is a book called The Shepherd Leader by Timothy Whitmer. He was the uh, professor of practical theology at Westminster Theological Seminary. A very, very readable book, very theological, but also very practical. So if you'd like to find out more about the role of elders, uh, do pick this up. Another book is How Jesus Runs the Church by Guy Prentice Waters. He is a professor of New Testament at Reformed Theological Seminary. I just sat uh, under him uh, for a particular class on covenant theology while I was in seminary. So I'd like to commend this to you, How Jesus Runs the Church and the Shepherd Leader. I'll get these out of the way by giving these books to my wife and family. Come with me now to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1 to 4. And as we read God's word, let's expect God to speak to us. And let's expect God to move in our hearts. The Apostle Peter says this, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Pray with me as we seek God's help to understand his word. Lord, we are helpless sheep who need a shepherd, and we thank you that you are the chief shepherd. And we pray right now, Chief Shepherd, that you would come and send your spirit to help us understand your word so that we would be shaped by your word. We would be encouraged by your word. We would be loved by your word. We would be built up by your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This year, uh, sorry, this week, I came to realize that I've been a Christian for more than 25 years. 
Okay, that's longer than some of you have been alive. Now, that's how long I've been a Christian. And as I thought about the number of years that I've been a Christian, I remember many times where leaders that I have looked up to, leaders that I have admired, have failed in dramatic fashion. And one of the most dramatic is a leader that I used to really admire while I was in university. I was in a university in the UK many, many years ago. And there was this famous Bible teacher that we all admired. His preaching was clear. It was penetrating. It was convicting. When we went to Bible conferences, we sat under conviction because he was preaching the gospel so clearly to us. We wanted to be like him. I wanted to be like him. In my final year in university, I was really excited because this famous Bible teacher was going to come to my university to do what we call a university mission, one week of evangelistic talks. But over the course of the summer, he suddenly cancelled all of his engagements. And we were surprised. We were very shocked. We later found out he cancelled all his engagements because he had left his wife and children and moved in with his study assistant, who we found out was his lover. I was devastated. I was angry. I was sad. And I felt so silly for ever listening to this man forever following this man. I don't need to tell you, friends, in the last few weeks and months, how this has been repeated again in Christian circles. Someone who has been a prominent Christian leader who passed away just last year has shown to have betrayed the trust of so many who listened to him. And that leaves many confused, heartbroken, angry, and frankly feeling silly forever listening or following such a person. Our friends were tempted to think in situations like this, let's just forget about leaders. They're no use anyway. They're dangerous. Let's just follow the Lord all by ourselves. Forget about Christian leaders. But friends, I'm here to tell you that the Bible's gentle answer to bad leaders is not no leaders. The Bible's gentle answer is that we are to appoint through a proper process and procedure good leaders. And we are to take these good leaders and embed them in a robust accountability structure. You see, friends, the Bible teacher that I spoke to you about, it later came out that he had stopped chairing the elders' meetings in his church for a long time. But no one confronted him, no one spoke to him, because he was on a pedestal. We need to appoint leaders, good leaders, through the proper procedures and the processes that the Bible has outlined for us. And we need to embed these leaders in strong and good and robust accountability structures. And some of you know that our church was kind of a church untimely born, you know, in strange circumstances. I came to Presbyterian Convictions when I was in seminary and we came out We started this church. We gathered in our living room about four years ago and started praying and forming the church. And in the very early days as we were forming the church, I made it a conscious decision to look for a denomination or an organization that would ordain me. And some people came to me and said, why are you putting yourself through this pain? It was difficult because you had to identify a group of people that you were aligned with and they would examine you. I ended up taking six, eight hour long exams plus a whole day of interviews. Uh, These men came to know me, interviewed myself, interviewed my wife, 
got to know our family before they would ordain me? And my simple answer to people ask why is simply this. Because some of them would say, we can see you, you can preach, you can lead. So why do you need to be ordained? We trust you. And I said to some of these people gently, I don't trust myself. I don't trust myself. And neither should you put absolute trust in me because I'm a weak and sinful human being. So I went out of my way to get properly ordained. And now it may seem that I'm the only one leading the church, but that's not true. We have a council of elders, a session of four people, a provisional session made up of myself and three other men. And all the decisions that we make are made collectively. We need to put in place good leaders and embed them in good and strong accountability structures. Why? Because leadership is good for our soul. Hebrews 13, 7 and 17 says, leaders are to speak the word of God over their people. Hebrews 13, 17 says that when you respond rightly to leadership, it is to your advantage. And just this week, I was reading in my choir time, Matthew chapter 9, 36, and where it says that Jesus saw the crowds and he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Like sheep without a shepherd. So the answer to bad leadership is not no leadership. It's good leadership and robust accountability structures. Come with me to the book of Titus. I'm going to be jumping around a bit in this sermon, but I want to show you biblically what we're doing. The book of Titus was written by Paul to a disciple of his called Titus who had left in Crete. Now Crete is a Greek island. The gospel had been preached. A people were gathered. A church had been planted. There was a thriving ministry there in Crete. But look at what Paul tells Titus in chapter 1, verse 5. He says to Titus, who is in this thriving new ministry, this new church plant, put what remains into order. Yes, there's a thriving gospel ministry. Yes, the gospel is being preached. Yes, people are being saved. But Titus, there still remains something that needs to be put in place for the church to be properly ordered. And what does he say? Appoint elders. Appoint elders. Put them in place so that the church can be properly ordered. Now look at verse 7. I just wanted you to make this mental note that Paul uses the word elder and overseer interchangeably. Now elder is the, the word that we use uh, and where we get the word presbyterian or presbyter, that means elder. The word overseer is from where we get the word bishop. And we see here in Titus chapter 1 that the term elder and overseer, presbyter or elder and bishop are used interchangeably. Now you may wonder why in the world is he asking Titus to appoint elders in a church that is thriving? Well, look at verse 10 and 11. Because even though this is a new, young, and thriving ministry, it was already being threatened. Verse 10 and 11 tells us that there were insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers penetrating the local church, teaching shameful things, teaching self-serving things that upset the faith of whole families. And friends, that is happening today. Even today in God's church, there will be those that will work themselves into churches Insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, false teachers who will upset the faith of many. And many of them will not be very obvious. You know when the devil tries to come into your church, he doesn't come with two horns and a tail making it very obvious. He comes as the nicest person in the church. 
He comes as the most well-read person in the church. But yet, as you dig deeper, you will find that this person is insubordinate, he's an empty talker, he's a deceiver, and more than that, he's teaching for shameful, self-serving gains, and he's upsetting the faith of whole families. He's creating factions in the church, he's tearing brother from brother and sister from sister through his shameful teaching. And what does Paul want us to do? He wants us to appoint elders to deal with situations like these. Properly appointed elders that can discern right and wrong, good and bad, wise and unwise, and deal with the situation the false teachers are penetrating and affecting and devastating and destroying the church of God. Now, bear that in mind. Come with me now to 1 Timothy chapter 3. It's a few pages before. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Now, this is Paul again writing to another disciple. And this disciple's name is Timothy. Now, Timothy is also a pastor. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1, Paul tells Timothy this, If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, and we remember Titus 1, verse 7, overseer and elder are used interchangeably, he desires a noble task. And this is where we get the term office. It is an office of an overseer, an office of an elder. These are church offices. Now, later on in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we know that there's another office, the office of deacon. Now, broadly speaking, elders take care of the spiritual needs of the church, the preaching of the word, the oversight of the church, uh, the leading of the church. Deacons take care of the more practical issues related to the church. We'll talk, be talking about le- uh, deacons in a subsequent process. But right now, the only point I want to make is this. This role of elder or overseer is an office of the church. It is a church officer, properly appointed. Now come with me to 1 Timothy 5.17. A few pages on. And Paul says this, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. So what do the elders do? They rule. They oversee the church. But there are some, especially, who labor in preaching and teaching. And that comes with double honor. And within the context, double honor there refers to some kind of monetary compensation. And that's why in our tradition, in our background, in our denomination, we distinguish between teaching elders and ruling elders. Now, all elders rule, but there are some that especially labor in preaching and teaching. These are what we call teaching elders. They are generally full-time, compensated, trained at seminary or Bible college, and go through a much more rigorous ordination process. And they take the bulk of the preaching and teaching in church. So I was ordained as a teaching elder three years ago by this group of elders. That's a teaching elder. Now what about ruling elders? Ruling elders are generally not full-time workers. They also go through a rigorous but a different training and ordination process. Now, ruling elders and teaching elders form a session and they govern the church together as equals. Yes, there is someone who leads a team, the lead pastor, uh, but he does not have absolute authority. Whenever they discuss issues and they make decisions, the lead pastor has one vote, just like the rest of the members of session. And in that way, he is held accountable 
and there are the diversity of views that can be brought in. So friends, when I have discussed issues with the original session, they have not always agreed with me. There are certain things that I wanted to do, and as we voted, uh, it came to the point where they voted, and it was not as what I wanted. And as someone who believes that that is the way that Jesus governs the church, I submit to the will of the collective will of the session because we believe that that is the way that Jesus governs the church. So you want to put in place elders who recognize that, who recognize and are humble enough to know that they don't always have all the answers, that they may get it wrong. And elders who will be able to submit to the broader collective wisdom of a body of elders. Now come with me to 1 Timothy 5.19. And Paul says this, Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now a few points to make. Number one, charges can be raised against elders. They are not holier than thou. They are not above criticism. Charges can be raised against elders. But at the same time, 1 Timothy 5.19 recognizes that the specific role of elder is often unpopular. It's often unpopular. They have to speak the truth. They have to lead the church. They have to call out sin. They have to put out certain people from the church who are disturbing the church. They have to exercise church discipline. And as a result of that, they are particularly vulnerable to false charges and false accusations. And so charges can be made against the elders, but it needs to be corroborated by two or three witnesses. And that's to say that this is a weighty office. This is not something flippant. This is something that we take very seriously. And that's why in verse 22, if you look at verse 22, Paul says this, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Now the laying on of hands is the ordination ceremony of the elders, where other elders will lay hands on them and set them apart as elders of the church. That's why the Christian Standard Bible translates verse 22 as, Don't be too quick to appoint anyone as an elder. Care must be taken. No one can just foist themselves on you and say, I'm your leader. I'm your shepherd. I have a seminary degree. I'm so smart. Follow me. No one can do that. There are proper procedures and processes given to us in the scriptures for us to appoint the right people into the right role. The Bible's answer to bad leadership is not no leadership. It's good leadership and beat it in robust accountability structures. And that's why I'm taking some time, friends, over the next three weeks to explain to you three things. The role of elders, the responsibility of elders, and finally, the requirements of elders. What are elders? What are they responsible for? What do they do? And finally, who can be an elder? And today's sermon, we will anchor in 1 Peter chapter 5, and I'll talk to you about the role of elders. What are elders? So come back with me to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 1, and we will see the Apostle Peter showing us that elders are three things. They are shepherds, they are overseers, and they are examples. They are shepherds, overseers, and examples. First Peter chapter 5, verse 1, the Apostle Peter says this, 
I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder. Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God. Elders are first and foremost shepherds of God's people. But they are not only shepherds in and of themselves. They are shepherds only because God himself is the shepherd. Look at verse 4. When the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Do you see what Peter is saying? Shepherd the flock of God because there is a chief shepherd who comes and will reward you for your shepherding. You see, the Bible throughout the scriptures describes God himself as our shepherd. Look at Isaiah chapter 40 verse 11. God will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are young. Or Psalm 23, which is very famous. Many Christians have memorized this. This is what the psalmist says of God. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness. So the Old Testament scriptures reveal God to us as the shepherd of Israel, as the shepherd of his people. Now Jesus himself in John chapter 10 verse 14 says this, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. And Jesus says in John 10, 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. They know me. I know them and they follow me. So the first point we need to make is this. God is the chief shepherd. Jesus is the chief shepherd. He is the one who is shepherding his people. But how does he do that practically here on earth? He appoints human shepherds as under-shepherds to take care of his sheep on his behalf. So those who would be shepherds, those who would be elders, need to know that the flock of God is fundamentally not your flock, not my flock. It's Jesus' flock. Who is the head of the church? Jesus is the head of the church. Who is the shepherd of the church? Jesus is the shepherd of the church. Jesus is the chief shepherd, and as chief shepherd, he appoints human shepherds to take care of his sheep. Which means, friends, as we consider this process of appointing elders, if you look past the human person, what you are seeing is the way God cares for you, the way God cares for me, the way God loves you, the way God loves me. It's not just conceptual. It's not amorphous. It's practical. It's fleshed out. Now, the bringing together different passages of the scriptures, Tim Whitmer in his book, The Shepherd Leader, identifies four things that shepherds do. I'll expound this in greater detail next week, but here I just want to give it to you and say a few things. Number one, Tim Whitmer says, the shepherd knows the sheep. Jesus says, I know the sheep. The shepherd knows the sheep. Number two, the shepherd feeds the sheep. He gives them God's word. Number three, the shepherd leads the sheep. And number four, the shepherd protects the sheep. They know the sheep, they feed the sheep, they lead the sheep, and they protect the sheep. Tim Whitmer goes on to say this. Are the elders, he asks a question, are the elders of your church a board of directors making decisions? Or is it a team of shepherds caring for the flock? Are the elders in your church just a board of directors making decisions or a team of shepherds caring for the flock? The answer to this question 
will have an impact on whether the primary qualifications for your leadership team is corporate success and experience or a shepherd's heart. Now, friends, we do need a board of directors. We have one. It's government-facing. It takes care of the administration of the church. It takes care of uh, how we are organized as a legal entity. But friends, and that is also the role that the elders will play, but friends, the board of elders is not primarily a board of directors making decisions. It primarily is a team of shepherds with shepherd hearts, shepherding the hearts of God's people. They need to know the sheep, feed the sheep, lead the sheep, and protect the sheep. I'll expound these in greater details next week. But for now, I just want to leave you with one point. The elders that we choose, friends, must be those who have a shepherd's heart. Not necessarily the smartest guys. Not necessarily the most successful. And friends, not necessarily the nicest either. Do you know why? Because elders, although they need to gently lead you, they also need to protect you. So you need to pick men who are gentle, who are lowly, who are kind, but who are also firm and strong. They need to be willing to call out sin when it is there. They need to be willing to put out sinners who refuse to repent of their sin and are disrupting the church. John Calvin puts it this way, the shepherd ought to have two voices, one for gathering the sheep and another for warding off and driving away wolves and thieves. The shepherd must have two voices, one voice for gathering the sheep, taking care of them, being gentle to them, but another that is willing to be strong and firm to say to the wolves that will come in and attack our sheep, you're not welcome here. And these are the men, friends, that we need to choose. Shepherds after God's own heart. Those that will know you. Those that will feed the sheep. Those that will protect the sheep and lead the sheep. And friends, if you are someone who is aspiring to the office of elder, know this, you are first and foremost aspiring to the office of a shepherd of God's people. You are called to be a shepherd who loves God's people, who has the guts to protect God's people. But the second thing that an elder is, is an overseer. Come with me to 1 Peter 5 verse 2. It says here that the elders are exercising oversight. They're exercising oversight. And as we saw just now in Titus 1.7 and 1 Timothy 3 verse 1 and 2, Paul uses the term overseer interchangeably with the term elder. So the elder is also an overseer. And if you look at 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4, one of the qualifications of an elder that I will expound in two weeks' time is that he must manage his own family or household well. You're thinking to yourself, why in the world is that a qualification for an elder? Well, verse 5 tells us, 1 Timothy 3, verse 5, if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? You see, the church of God is a community of God's people. It's God's family. And the elders are called to oversee the affairs of the church as God's household, as God's family. 
And the first church that the elder is called to tend is his own family. So elders are called to oversee the affairs of the church on two levels. On a macro level, the whole church, the whole flock, but also on a micro level, individual members of the church. Tim Whitmer goes on to say this. What does this involve? It involves making decisions for matters that concern the congregation as a whole. This includes leading the vision, mission, purpose, and policies of the church as the Lord has clearly outlined in his word. Now, friends, our church has a vision. We have a mission and we have values. And some of us think, wow, is that a bit too corporate? Let me try and make it less corporate for you with a simple word. What a vision, mission, and the values that the church merely does is this. It takes the word of God and it applies it in our world. It takes the word of God and it applies it in our world. John Stott, the great Anglican pastor and theologian, once said this, you must be, you have two ears. One that listens to scripture and the other that listens to the environment and community that you're in. And as a pastor, as a preacher, you're supposed to bring together what scripture teaches with what you are doing in the world. So vision, mission and values is not some kind of a corporate thing that we're trying to impose on people. It's merely the church articulating to ourselves and through the world, this is what we believe the scriptures teach and this is how we are to live. Not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. And elders on a macro level, overseeing the entire church and flock, have to ask the question, what did the scriptures teach? Yes, that's the first question. But also, how do we apply and how do we obey the scriptures in our time, our culture, and in our age? And that is fleshed out in the vision, mission, and purposes of the church. Now, if you need a revision, Yen actually put together a very helpful document that we've actually been taking the newer membership classes through that explains our vision, mission, and values in a very simple way. What it means and what it looks like. I really want to commend this document to, to you. So Yen, uh, okay, maybe not now, uh, but a bit later, maybe you can send out the document to, to the members of the church. Okay? It's a very helpful document just to get back to what we're doing. Sorry, put you on the spot there. So that's overseeing the church on a macro level. But you know, friends, the shepherd, the elder, also needs to oversee the church on a micro level. Hebrews 13, 17 says this, the leaders are keeping watch over your souls. You see, the word overseer is a visual word. It means watching. Now, not watching in a voyeuristic or busybody way, but in a caring way. The shepherds see you and they know you. They see what is good for the sheep and they lovingly steer them to what, what is good for them and their flourishing. They also see when the sheep are straying and they lovingly steer them back to God. So friends, when you are picking shepherds and elders, pick those who want to see you and who want to know you. Not just those making decisions on a macro level, although that's important, but those who will sit down with you and listen to you and understand you. Pick those who see you and pick those who know you. Don't just pick men who know a lot 
although they must know a lot. Pick those that can flesh out what they know practically in ways that are useful to you personally and to the church as a whole. And friend, if you are aspiring to the office of elder, be the kind of men that don't just read a lot. Be the kind of men that work hard at knowing people and fleshing out what you know in real practical terms for your people so that their pain is soothed and so that they're encouraged and so that they are led to follow and love God. We need men who can oversee the affairs of the church and also see the affairs of your soul and gently lead you as Jesus, the chief shepherd, leads. So the shepherd is first. The elder is first a shepherd. Secondly, he's an overseer. But finally, he's an example. Look at First Peter chapter 5, verse 3. And Peter says this, being examples to the flock, not domineering over those who are in your charge, not just telling them what to do, but leading by example. Now we'll be expounding the qualifications of elders in First Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 to 7, and Titus 1, verse 6 to 9 in two weeks' time. But for now, even as you glance through those qualifications, I want you to notice one thing. The qualifications are incredibly normal. And the qualifications are incredibly focused on godly character and not capability. Why? Because elders are supposed to be examples to the flock. They are people that God's flock can look to. And as people follow them and imitate them, they become more godly, even as the elders themselves become more godly as they follow Christ. Did you know the Apostle Paul actually says in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. You know what Paul is saying? I'm following Christ. If you follow me and you imitate me, you will be following Christ. Now, he's not saying he's perfect because in other parts of Scripture, he also calls himself the chief of sinners. But he is saying that as a shepherd of God's people, I am imitating Christ, I am following Christ, and as you follow my example, you will become not more like me, but more like Jesus Christ. The, the late Howard Hendricks, who was a professor at Dallas Theological Seminary, once said this, You teach what you know, but you reproduce who you are. You teach what you know, but you reproduce who you are. Now, those words are so challenging to my heart. And again, friends, you know, in our reform circles, we tend to admire people who know a lot and talk a lot. There's nothing wrong with knowing, nothing wrong with talking. Knowledge and speech are very important. But friends, so is toiling and living. Don't just pick people who know a lot and who can talk a lot. Pick people who you can see as examples of godliness because they can only teach you what they know, but they will reproduce who they are. Proverbs 14.23 says this, In all toil there is profit, 
but mere talk tends only to poverty. Elders need to be examples to the flock. Examples in their relationship with Christ. Are they following Christ? Examples in their relationship with their family. Are they shepherding the first flock well? Examples in their relationship with the church. Are they pursuing the purity and peace of the church? Are they supporting the work and worship of the church to the best of their abilities? And in their relationship with the world, are they well thought of by unbelievers? We'll be expounding some of these in the weeks to come. But here is the point. Elders need to be those that are exemplary. Those that you can look up to and say, I know he's not perfect, but there's something about his faith, something about the way that he follows Christ, something about the way he manages his family, something about the way he manages the church, something about him that I want to be like. We teach what we know. We reproduce who we are. So friends, I know this is a bit of a sobering sermon. I make no apologies for it. As we think about those who would be elders over our church, if you are considering the office of elder, ask this question of yourself. If everyone in the church was like me, how healthy would the church family be? If everyone in this church was like me, and you're not perfect, I know it's okay, I'm not perfect either, but ask this question of yourself. If everyone in the church was like me, how healthy would the church family be? And members of One Covenant Church, as you're considering those that you would nominate for elders, ask yourself this sobering question too. If everyone in the church was like him, how healthy would the church family be? Friends, we're not looking for perfect people because there are none. But we are looking for people that will be examples that we can follow. So three things, friends. The role of elder is first a shepherd. He's also an overseer and he's example for the flock. As we draw to a close, maybe like me, you're wondering, how in the world are we going to find elders like these? Or how in the world am I going to be an elder like this? And friends, if, if we are wondering that as a church and as individuals, we're in the right place. You know, I make no mistakes. The standards are high. And if we compromise on those standards, we compromise on the health of the church. Joel Beakey, when he was here two years ago, said this, the level of godliness of the church hardly ever rises above the level of godliness of its leaders. So if we compromise on these high standards, we are compromising on the health of the church. We're compromising on the health of our own soul. So make no mistakes, the standards are extremely high. But friends, make no mistakes either. The only way we will ever accomplish and achieve these standards is not by works, but it's by grace. And did you know that the same Peter who wrote First Peter was himself called to be a shepherd more than 20 years before he wrote First Peter? 
And when he was called to be a shepherd, it wasn't when he was strongest. It wasn't when he was most confident. It was when he was most broken and most dejected. Turn with me to John chapter 21, verse 15 to 17. Peter, as those of us who have read the Gospels would know, was a very self-confident man. He would say to Jesus, if everyone leaves you, I will be with you. And Jesus gently told him, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. And that is exactly what Peter did. The self-confident, cocksure man denied his Lord, denied his Savior at the Savior's weakest moments, on his way to the cross, not once, not twice, but three times. And it broke him. After Jesus was raised from the dead, he is the one that comes to Peter. Peter is too ashamed to come to Jesus. Jesus is the one who comes to Peter. And Jesus asks Peter three times, one time each for every time that he had denied him, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Peter gives three faltering Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes. And what does Jesus say in response? Jesus says to Peter, Feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep. Do you know what Jesus is saying to Peter? Be a shepherd of my people. Yes, you've blown it. Not just once, not just twice, but three times. But here am I talking to you and calling you and saying to you, shepherd my people, not in your strength, but in your brokenness. Not by your works, but by my grace. Come with me to 1 Peter chapter 2.21 and we'll finish with this. The same Peter who had encountered the love and the grace of Jesus Christ, not at his strongest, but at his weakest, would later write in 1 Peter chapter 2.21, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. And look at verse 25. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Friends, the only way we're going to find elders for God's people is when we entrust ourselves to the elder of God's people. Jesus himself is the perfect example. Jesus himself is the perfect shepherd. And Jesus himself is the perfect overseer. We see this in his perfect life. And yet the perfect elder died in your place and in my place for all God's imperfect elders. He clears them, not just of their eldering sins, but of all their sins. And there's more, friends. He credits his perfect eldership record to them so that when Jesus looks at them, he does not see unrighteousness. He sees the righteousness of God himself. That is what Jesus does with all of our eldering sins. And then he does more. 
He sends the Holy Spirit into their hearts. And he is at work at this very moment, conforming them into the image of the perfect example, the perfect overseer, and the perfect shepherd. Look up at me for a moment, friends. As we consider elders, don't look for perfect men. You know why? Don't have. There are none. But friends, don't look for capable men in and of themselves either. You know why? They will disappoint you. I will disappoint you. I have disappointed you. Look for men who are broken by their sin. And look for men who are looking intently at the perfect example, the perfect overseer, and the perfect shepherd. Look for broken men who are made able and increasingly capable by the grace and the gospel of our Lord and our Savior. Let's pray. Our God and our King, as we come before you, our minds are all over the place as we consider the affairs of the world in the past week. And so we come before you, Lord, knowing that our strength is found in you and we can be broken, we can be undone in your presence. We come before you, Father, and we want to pray for the unrest in America the shocking scenes of unrest that we have seen where symbols of freedom have been so freely desecrated. Symbols of freedom not just for the USA, but for the world have been so shockingly desecrated. And we confess to you, Father, that we are sad, we are grieving, we are angry. But Father, we thank you that even in these situations, you are the sovereign Lord who is shepherding our souls and guiding us. And so right now, Father, because of Jesus, we come before you confidently in prayer, asking you, Father, for peace in America and peace in the world. We pray, Father, for a smooth transition of power. We hear of rumors of more violence, and we ask you boldly, Father, to hold back the hand of evil, that peace may prevail. We ask you in this time, for deep repentance among your people, that on both sides they will bow their knee before you and confess you as Lord and Savior above all other earthly saviors. And in that confession, draw near to one another in reconciliation, in peace, in hope. We pray, Father, for this nation that you would once again make them rise, give them hope, not in themselves, but in the true Savior and King, Jesus Christ. Father, we also want to lift up to you the unfolding situation with the plane that had taken off from Jakarta and did not make it to its destination. We pray for the families of the victims involved, that you would bring comfort. We pray for the officials who are doing search and rescue, that you would guide their efforts. We pray, Father, that comfort would come 
not just from earthly sources, but heavenly sources. For those who know you, Father, may they find comfort in the shepherd and overseer of their souls. For those who don't, Father, I pray that those who do know you may bring your comfort into their lives. Father, we pray for our own nation. We thank you that the vaccines, batches of the vaccines for COVID-19 have arrived. And we pray, Father, for a smooth and orderly vaccination process, Lord, where those who most need the vaccine are given it. We pray also, Father, that indeed, if it be your will, that we would develop herd immunity in Singapore so that we would be best loving our neighbours and caring for each other. We pray for ourselves that we continue to be vigilant and continue not just to care about ourselves but about others as we uh, obey the safe distancing measures that have been put in place. And finally, Father, we pray for our church. We thank you for all that you have done in our midst over the last few years, how you have guided us and led us and shepherded us through imperfect human gifts and how you continue to shepherd, oversee, and lead us even now. And Father, as you have opened the door for us to take this next step to appoint elders, we pray that we would be guided by your word, be moved by your spirit, that we would come in humble repentance before you, both as shepherds as well as sheep, confessing to you how often we have not depended on you and on your grace confessing you to you the multiple times we have been judgmental of one another and pointing the finger in each other rather than pointing one another to our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, for those men that you are calling to this role, I pray that you would do a work in their hearts right now, that all of their failures and all of that sense of inadequacy would be engulfed in the grace and mercy and glory of our Lord and our King, Jesus Christ, today. That they would hear your gentle voice calling out to them, Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Father, for us, the sheep, I pray, guide us with wisdom, guide us with love, not by our whims, not by our fancies, but guide us by your word and guide us by your spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And the time back to you.